Chapters 5 and 6 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 5. Fortune, we are told, is a blind and fickle foster mother who showers her gifts at random upon her nurslings. But we do her a grave injustice if we believe such an accusation. Trace a man's career from his cradle to his grave and mark how fortune has treated him. You will find that when he is once dead, she can for the most part be vindicated from the charge of any but very superficial fickleness. Her blindness is the merest fable. She can espy her favorites long before they are born. We are as days, and have had our parents for our yesterdays. But through all the fair weather of a clear parental sky, the eye of fortune can discern the coming storm, and she laughs as she places her favorites, it may be, in a London alley, or those whom she is resolved to ruin, in king's palaces. Seldom does she relent towards those whom she has suckled unkindly, and seldom does she completely fail a favored nursling. Was George Pontifex one of Fortune's favored nurslings, or not? On the whole I should say that he was not, for he did not consider himself so. He was too religious to consider Fortune a deity at all. He took whatever she gave and never thanked her being firmly convinced that whatever he got, to his own advantage, was of his own getting. And so it was, after fortune had made him able to get it. Nos te nos facimos fortuna, diam, exclaimed the poet. It is we who make thee, fortune, a goddess. And so it is, after fortune has made us able to make her. The poet says nothing as to the making of the nos, Perhaps some men are independent of antecedents and surroundings and have an initial force within themselves which is in no way due to causation. But this is supposed to be a difficult question, and it may be as well to avoid it. Let it suffice that George Pontifex did not consider himself fortunate, and he who does not consider himself fortunate is unfortunate. True, he was rich, universally respected and of an excellent natural constitution. If he had eaten and drunk less, he would never have known a day's indisposition. Perhaps his main strength lie in the fact that though his capacity was a little above the average, it was not too much so. It is on this rock that so many clever people split. The successful man will see just so much more than his neighbors as they will be able to see too when it is shown them, but not enough to puzzle them. It is far safer to know too little than too much. People will condemn the one, though they will resent being called upon to exert themselves to follow the other. The best example of Mr. Pontifex's good sense in matters connected with his business, which I can think of at this moment, is the revolution which he effected in the style of advertising works published by the firm. When he first became a partner, one of the firm's advertisements ran thus. 
books proper to be given away at this season. The pious country parishioner, being directions how a Christian may manage every day in the course of his whole life with safety and success, how to spend the Sabbath day, what books of the Holy Scripture ought to be read first, the whole method of education, collects for the most important virtues that adorn the soul, a discourse on the Lord's Supper, rules to set the soul right in sickness, so that in this treatise are contained all the rules requisite for salvation. The eighth edition, with editions, price, ten penny. An allowance will be made to those who give them away. Before he had been many years a partner, the advertisement stood as follows. The pious country parishioner, a complete manual of Christian devotion, price, ten penny. A reduction will be made to purchasers for gratuitous distribution. What a stride is made in the foregoing towards the modern standard, and what intelligence is involved in the perception of the unseemliness of the old style, when others did not perceive it. Where, then, was the weak place in George Pontifex's armor? I suppose in the fact that he had risen too rapidly. It would almost seem as if a transmitted education of some generations is necessary for the due enjoyment of great wealth. Adversity, if a man is set down to it by degrees, is more supportable with equanimity by most people than any great prosperity arrived at in a single lifetime. Nevertheless, a certain kind of good fortune generally attends self-made men to the last. It is their children of the first or first and second generation who are in greater danger for the race can no more repeat its most successful performances suddenly, and without its ebbings and flowings of success than the individual can do. And the more brilliant the success in any one generation, the greater as a general rule the subsequent exhaustion until time has been allowed for recovery. Hence it often happens that the grandson of a successful man will be more successful than the son, the spirit that actuated the grandfather, having lain fallow in the sun, and being refreshed by repose, so as to be ready for fresh exertion in the grandson. A very successful man, moreover, has something of the hybrid in him. He is a new animal, arising from the coming together of many unfamiliar elements, and it is well known that the reproduction of abnormal growths, whether animal or vegetable, is irregular and not to be depended on, even when they are not absolutely sterile. And certainly Mr. Pontifex's success was exceedingly rapid. Only a few years after he had become a partner, his uncle and aunt both died within a few months of one another. It was then found that they had made him their heir. He was thus not only sole partner in the business, but found himself with a fortune of some thirty thousand pounds into the bargain, and this was a large sum in those days. Money came pouring in upon him, and the faster it came, the fonder he became of it, though, as he frequently said, he valued it not for its own sake, but only as a means of providing for his dear children. Yet when a man is very fond of his money, it is not easy for him at all times to be very fond of his children also. The two are like God and mammon. 
Lord Macaulay has a passage in which he contrasts the pleasures which a man may derive from books with the inconveniences to which he may be put by his acquaintances. Plato, he says, is never sullen. Cervantes is never petulant. Demosthenes never comes unseasonably. Dante never stays too long. No difference of political opinion can alienate Cicero. No heresy can excite the horror of Bossuet. I dare say I might differ from Lord Macaulay in my estimate of some of the writers he has named, but there can be no disputing his main proposition, namely, that we need have no more trouble from any of them than we have a mind to, whereas our friends are not always so easily disposed of. George Pontifex felt this as regards his children and his money. His money was never naughty, his money never made noise or litter, and did not spill things on the tablecloth at mealtimes, or leave the door open when it went out. His dividends did not quarrel among themselves, nor was he under any uneasiness lest his mortgages should become extravagant on reaching manhood, and run him up debts which sooner or later he should have to pay. There were tendencies in John which made him very uneasy and Theobald, his second son, was idle and at times far from truthful. His children might, perhaps, have answered, had they known what was in their father's mind, that he did not knock his money about as he not infrequently knocked his children. He never dealt hastily or pettishly with his money, and that was perhaps why he and it got on so well together. It must be remembered that at the beginning of the nineteenth century, the relations between parents and children were still far from satisfactory. The violent type of father, as described by Fielding, Richardson, Smollett, and Sheridan, is now hardly more likely to find a place in literature than the original advertisement of Messrs. Fairley and Pontifex's pious country parishioner. But the type was much too persistent not to have been drawn from nature closely. The parents in Miss Austen's novels are less like savage wild beasts than those of her predecessors, but she evidently looks upon them with suspicion, and an uneasy feeling that le père du famille est capable de tout makes itself sufficiently apparent throughout the greater part of her writings. In the Elizabethan time the relations between parents and children seem on the whole to have been more kindly. The fathers and the sons are for the most part friends in Shakespeare, nor does the evil appear to have reached its full abomination till a long course of Puritanism had familiarized men's minds with Jewish ideals as those which we should endeavor to reproduce in our everyday life. What precedents did not Abraham, Jephthah, and Jonadab, the son of Rechab, offer? How easy was it to quote and follow them in an age when few reasonable men or women doubted that every syllable of the Old Testament was taken down verbatim from the mouth of God? Moreover, Puritanism restricted natural pleasures. It substituted the Jeremiah for the Pean, and it forgot that the poor abuses of all time want countenance. Mr. Pontifex may have been a little sterner with his children than some of his neighbors, but not much. He thrashed his boys two or three times a week, and some weeks a good deal oftener, but in those days fathers were always thrashing their boys. 
It is easy to have juster views when everyone else has them, but fortunately or unfortunately, results have nothing whatever to do with the moral guilt or blamelessness of him who brings them about. They depend solely upon the thing done, whatever it may happen to be. The moral guilt or blamelessness in like manner has nothing to do with the result. It turns upon the question whether a sufficient number of reasonable people, placed as the actor was placed, would have done as the actor has done. At that time it was universally admitted that to spare the rod was to spoil the child, and St. Paul had placed disobedience to parents in very ugly company. If his children did anything which Mr. Pontifex disliked, they were clearly disobedient to their father. In this case, there was obviously only one course for a sensible man to take. It consisted in checking the first signs of self-will while his children were too young to offer serious resistance. If their wills were well broken in childhood, to use an expression then much in vogue, they would acquire habits of obedience which they would not venture to break through till they were over twenty-one years old. Then they might please themselves. He should know how to protect himself. Till then he and his money were more at their mercy than he liked. How little do we know our thoughts? Our reflex actions, indeed, yes. But our reflex reflections? Man, forsooth, prides himself on his consciousness. We boast that we differ from the winds and waves and falling stones and plants, which grow they know not why, and from the wandering creatures which go up and down after their prey, as we are pleased to say, without the help of reason. We know so well what we are doing ourselves, and why we do it, do we not? I fancy that there is some truth in the view which is being put forward nowadays, that it is our less conscious thoughts and our less conscious actions which mainly mould our lives and the lives of those who spring from us. Chapter 6 Mr. Pontifex was not the man to trouble himself much about his motives. People were not so introspective then as we are now. They lived more according to a rule of thumb. Dr. Arnold had not yet sown that crop of earnest thinkers which we are now harvesting, and men did not see why they should not have their own way, if no evil consequences to themselves seem likely to follow upon their doing so. Then, as now, however, they sometimes let themselves in for more evil consequences than they had bargained for. Like other rich men at the beginning of this century, he ate and drank a good deal more than was enough to keep him in health. Even his excellent constitution was not proof against a prolonged course of overfeeding and what we should now consider overdrinking. His liver would not unfrequently get out of order, and he would come down to breakfast looking yellow about the eyes. Then the young people knew that they had better look out. It is not as a general rule the eating of sour grapes that causes the children's teeth to be set on edge. Well-to-do parents seldom eat many sour grapes. The danger to the children lies in the parents eating too many sweet ones. I grant that at first sight it seems very unjust 
that the parents should have the fun and the children be punished for it. But young people should remember that for many years they were part and parcel of their parents, and therefore had a good deal of the fun in the person of their parents. If they have forgotten the fun now, that is no more than people do who have a headache after having been tipsy overnight. The man with a headache does not pretend to be a different person from the man who got drunk, and claim that it is his self of the preceding night, and not his self of this morning, who should be punished. No more should offspring complain of the headache which it has earned when in the person of its parents. For the continuation of identity, though not so immediately apparent, is just as real in one case as in the other. What is really hard is when the parents have the fun after the children have been born, and the children are punished for this. On these his black days he would take very gloomy views of things, and say to himself that in spite of all his goodness to them, his children did not love him. But who can love any man whose liver is out of order? How base, he would exclaim to himself, was such ingratitude! How especially hard upon himself, who has been such a model son, and always honored and obeyed his parents, though they had not spent one hundredth part of the money upon him which he has lavished upon his own children. It is always the same story, he would say to himself. The more young people have, the more they want, and the less thanks one gets. I have made a great mistake. I have been far too lenient with my children. Never mind, I have done my duty by them, and more. If they fail in theirs to me, it is a matter between God and them. I, at any rate, am guiltless. Why, I might have married again and become the father of a second and perhaps more affectionate family, etc., etc. He pitied himself for the expensive education which he was giving his children. He did not see that the education cost the children far more than it cost him inasmuch as it cost them the power of earning their living easily, rather than help them towards it, and ensured their being at the mercy of their father for years after they had come to an age when they should be independent. A public school education cuts off a boy's retreat. He can no longer become a laborer or a mechanic, and these are the only people whose tenure of independence is not precarious with the exception, of course, of those who are born inheritors of money, or who are placed young in some safe and deep groove. Mr. Pontifex saw nothing of this. All he saw was that he was spending much more money upon his children than the law would have compelled him to do, and what more could you have? Might he not have apprenticed both of his sons to be green grocers? Might he not even yet do so to-morrow morning if he were so minded? The possibility of this course being adopted was a favorite topic with him, when he was out of temper. True, he never did apprentice either of his sons to greengrocers, but his boys comparing notes together had sometimes come to the conclusion that they wished he would. At other times when not quite well, he would have them in for the fun of shaking his will at them. He would, in his imagination, cut them all out one after another, and leave his money to found almshouses, till at last he was obliged to put them back, so that he might have the pleasure of cutting them out again the next time he was in a passion. Of course, if young people allow their conduct to be in any way influenced by regard to the wills of living persons, 
they are doing very wrong and must expect to be sufferers in the end. Nevertheless, the powers of will-dangling and will-shaking are so liable to abuse and are continually made so great an engine of torture that I would pass a law, if I could, to incapacitate any man from making a will for three months from the date of each offence in either of the above respects, and let the bench of magistrates or judge before whom he has been convicted dispose of his property as they shall think right and reasonable if he dies during the time that his will-making power is suspended. Mr. Pontifex would have the boys into the dining-room. "'My dear John, my dear Theobald,' he would say, "'look at me. I began life with nothing but the clothes which with my father and mother sent me up to London. My father gave me ten shillings and my mother five for pocket-money, and I thought them munificent.' I never asked my father for a shilling in the whole course of my life, nor took aught from him beyond the small sum he used to allow me monthly till I was in receipt of a salary. I made my own way, and I shall expect my sons to do the same. Pray don't take it into your heads that I am going to wear my life out making money that my sons may spend it for me. If you want money you must make it for yourselves as I did for I give you my word I will not leave a penny to either of you unless you show that you deserve it. Young people seem nowadays to expect all kinds of luxuries and indulgences, which were never heard of when I was a boy. Why, my father was a common carpenter, and here are both of you at public schools, costing me ever so many hundreds a year, while I at your age was plodding away behind a desk in my Uncle Fairley's counting-house. What should I not have done if I had had one half of your advantages? You should become dukes or found new empires in undiscovered countries, and even then I doubt whether you would have done proportionately so much as I have done. No, no, I shall see you through school and college, and then, if you please, you will make your own way in the world." In this manner he would work himself up into such a state of virtuous indignation that he would sometimes thrash the boys then and there upon some pretext invented at the moment. And yet, as children went, the young pontifexes were fortunate. There would be ten families of young people worse off for one better. They ate and drank good wholesome food, slept in comfortable beds, had the best doctors to attend to them when they were ill and the best education that could be had for money. The want of fresh air does not seem much to affect the happiness of children in a London alley. The greater part of them sing and play as though they were on a moor in Scotland. So the absence of a genial mental atmosphere is not commonly recognized by children who have never known it. Young people have a marvelous faculty of either dying or adapting themselves to circumstances. Even if they are unhappy, very unhappy, it is astonishing how easily they can be prevented from finding it out, or at any rate from attributing it to any other cause than their own sinfulness. To parents who wish to lead a quiet life, I would say, tell your children that they are very naughty, much naughtier than most children, 
point to the young people of some acquaintances as models of perfection and impress your own children with a deep sense of their own inferiority. You carry so many more guns than they do that they cannot fight you. This is called moral influence, and it will enable you to bounce them as much as you please. They think you know, and they will not have yet caught you lying often enough to suspect that you are not the unworldly and scrupulously truthful person which you represent yourself to be. Nor yet will they know how great a coward you are, nor how soon you will run away if they fight you with persistency and judgment. You can keep the dice and throw them both for your children and yourself. Load them, then, for you can easily manage and stop your children from examining them. Tell them how singularly indulgent you are. Insist on the incalculable benefit you conferred upon them, firstly in bringing them into the world at all, but more particularly in bringing them into it as your own children rather than anyone else's. Say that you have their highest interests at stake whenever you are out of temper and wish to make yourselves unpleasant by way of balm to your soul. Harp much on these highest interests. Feed them spiritually upon such brimstone and treacle as the late Bishop of Winchester's Sunday stories. You hold all the trump cards, or if you do not, you can filch them. If you play them with anything like judgment, you will find yourselves heads of happy, united, God-fearing families, even as did my old friend, Mr. Pontifex. True, your children will probably find out all about it some day, but not until too late to be of much service to them, or inconvenience to yourself. Some satirists have complained of life, inasmuch as all the pleasures belong to the fore part of it, and we must see them dwindle till we are left, it may be, with the miseries of a decrepit old age. To me it seems that youth is like spring, an overpraised season, delightful if it happens to be a favored one, but in practice very rarely favored, and more remarkable, as a general rule, for biting east winds than genial breezes. Autumn is the mellower season, and what we lose in flowers we more than gain in fruits. Fontenelle, at the age of ninety, being asked what was the happiest time of his life, said that he did not know that he had ever been much happier than he then was, but that perhaps his best years had been those when he was between fifty-five and seventy-five, and Dr. Johnson placed the pleasures of old age far higher than those of youth. True in old age we live under the shadow of death, which, like a sword of Damocles, may descend at any moment, but we have so long found life to be an affair of being rather frightened than hurt, that we have become like the people who live under Vesuvius, and chance it without much misgiving. End of chapter 6 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman